Our Father, we do delight to sing of, oh, how you love us, and how that love has been proven and secured in the Son, whom you did not spare in any way, so that we might receive our adoption as sons and daughters, that we might be called children of God, that we might be brought near to you, not only now, but even more gloriously in the future and eternity when we stand in your presence, blameless with great joy to live and delight in your light forever and ever and ever. How we long for that day. And it is a day that is coming. It is a day that is certain. We are assured by your very word and we are assured by the very resurrection of Christ. And while it is a day of rejoicing for your people, it is a day of terror and sadness for the unbelieving world, part of which we'll consider this morning. Help us, help us to anticipate that day with great joy for ourselves and yet with great sadness for the world so that we would be faithful again to be your witnesses and to speak the truth in every opportunity we get that you might rescue some. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open your Bibles again this morning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We'll be looking at verse 36 this morning as we continue to look at the Lord's instructions concerning the the circumstances and the reality of His second advent, advent, His return to earth. Now, as we've noted before, it is this return of the Lord to the earth that is the heart cry, the soul cry, if you will, of His people who long to be with Him. At least that should be our heart cry and our soul cry. It is the very longing that we're left with that's echoing from then on as we read the last words of Scripture. Revelation twenty-two seventeen and 20 says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So after a short benediction, Following those words, God's written word comes to an end. And it's a, it comes to an end with the, the cry of the Spirit in the hearts of His people in the church. Hastening the coming of the Lord. And it is something that He promised He will bring about quickly. Soon the day of the Lord is indeed near. And nearer today than it was when those words were written down. We long to be with Him. We long to be in His presence. We long to be in the presence of the Father and all of the saints of all ages and the holy angels. And we long for the joy of worship without the presence of sin and every benefit and delight that comes from this world of righteousness that God has created and ordained for us to take part in. That's what we long for. And it's been the longing of God's people ever since He ascended into the clouds. You'll remember maybe the scene in Acts when Jesus, after spending 40 days with His disciples and appearing to other people, said this at the end. It says, And after He had said these things, speaking to the eleven, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." And so they stood watching him ascend into the clouds and they were gazing intently at heaven as he went up to the right hand of the Father. And we, in a sense, gaze intently also up into heaven awaiting for his return on the clouds to establish his kingdom, justice, and to bring our salvation to its full fruition. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come, come Lord Jesus, come. Take us to be with you. Take us to or establish your kingdom here on this earth. 
And though he tarries, he will indeed come. But as was mentioned for us, this coming is a time of blessing. It's a time of joy. It's a time of hope. It's a time that we anticipate for, but anticipate. But for the unbelieving world, it is in fact a time of terror. It's a time of dread. It's a time of judgment. It's where justice will be met out perfectly on the unbelieving and on the rebellion, on the rebellious. And it is the aspect of judgment that Jesus is focusing our attention here primarily in Matthew 24 and all the way up into chapter 25. It is an unexpected day of judgment that will come at his return. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at three aspects of this unexpected judgment. That it is secret, that it is sudden, and that it will come as a surprise and bring surprises. We're going to look at the first of our section over these next two weeks, verses 36 through 41 this morning, focusing on verse 36. Read with me, however, beginning in verse 36 down to verse 41, and then we'll swing back around and consider it more closely. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36. And again, he says these words after he has just reminded his disciples, those hearing him, that His word cannot be broken. His word is as certain as heaven and earth. And indeed, him who has created the heavens and the earth and sustains them is the one speaking these words. And it is in that affirmation then a reminder that he is coming, that the signs of his coming are soon to come to pass. And that once those signs are seen, he is near even at the door. And then he says in verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father of Lone. So it is, for that reason, entitled here, a secret day. Or a hidden day. It's a day that has not been revealed. It is a day that is set and known by the knowledge and the will of the Father alone. Now, verse 36 is probably the most significant verse in this section in terms of understanding the Lord's instructions, in terms of understanding precisely what He is warning us about and all of the parables will draw our attention to in terms of our anticipation of His return from heaven. This is... In fact, going back and answering the disciples' question about when. When is he going to return? And his answer is essentially, that's not for you to know. That's not for you to know. Now when the disciples asked that question, indeed, they were seeing this whole complex of events related to the Messiah and the nations gathering against Jerusalem, the destructions of the nations and the establishment of the kingdom and all of those messianic hopes of Old Testament Israel and indeed even contemporary Jews. They were lumping all of those things together in one. Jesus, however, is showing that God's plan is more complex than that. It's layered. There's going to be a time of waiting before he comes to establish this kingdom. And yet after explaining those things, he essentially leaves it at, but you don't know when this is going to happen. And says those amazing words, even the son doesn't know, but the father alone. Now in order then to understand what he's speaking of here, there's several questions that must be answered. Such as, What day and hour is he referring to? And how does this day and hour 
relate to the unexpectedness of his return. If he just said, in fact, that you can know that he is near when these signs begin to happen. And what does Jesus' ignorance about his coming say about his deity? Say about the reality of his godness, that he is, in fact, the God-man. And why would it be important for him to mention this? These are all important questions for us to ask and we'll seek to answer this morning. Now, one difficulty, one tension with the Lord's words here, and particularly in terms of referring to it, his referring to his soon coming after those signs uh, that he's just mentioned are giving evidence of his coming, is the fact that everything he says afterwards emphasizes the unexpectedness of his return, the unexpectedness of this judgment that's going to come. In fact, that is the very point of the illustration that he will give in Noah that we'll look at next week. And it is the very point that he repeats over and over as he gives us the parables uh, throughout the remainder of this section. Indeed, he says in verse 44 of chapter 24, For this reason you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. Reminds him in verse 50, if the master of that slave had known what what day to expect his master, he would not have done the evil deed that he did. But in fact, he says in verse 50, he's coming at an hour which he does not know. He repeats the same thing in verse 20, chapter 25, verse 13. Be on the alert. You do not know the day or the hour. So there is an unexpectedness. There's an anticipation that should be in the hearts of God's people. However, Jesus has just finished giving a parable in which the very point was to show that you can anticipate and his people can anticipate the nearness of his return because of the signs that will take place. The signs beginning in verse 4 of chapter 24. When those things are seen, when the early leaves appear on the fig tree in the illustration that he gives or parable, then you are to know that he is near or that these events are near right at the door. Right at the door. And these events, as we've noticed, especially those that begin in verse 15 of chapter 24, mark this period as Daniel's 70th week, which is a very definite period of seven years. Seven years, also known as the tribulation. And verse 15 marks it even more specifically, the midpoint, and marks then the final three and a half years of that week. So it would be very difficult then to make Jesus' statement in verse 36, or again the language of anticipation in this section through 25.13, to fit that period within uh, the beginning of the signs of his return. However, let me suggest to you that it is possible that the unexpected nature of Christ's returns fits within this week by saying that Jesus simply means that one does not know the exact moment of his return. In other words, there's a general time period, but that particular day or that particular hour, that exact moment of his return is unknown and will catch those on the earth at the time by surprise. It is then other to say then that it's possible that he means that it could happen at any point during the last half of the week, any day at hour, day or hour, and it will catch those when he does return by surprise, and they will be surprised because of their willful unbelief. It's also possible to understand this is referring to the entire period of judgment, the whole time of judgment that begins in verse 4 of chapter 24, ending with his return to the earth. In verses 29 through 31. The whole period of the early leaves and the messianic destruction and death and judgment. Detailed in Revelation 6 through 19. When he will bring judgment to the unbelieving world. Beginning at the first day of that seven year period. And ending with the final destruction at his return. Right before he establishes his kingdom on earth. In other words it would end then with the battle of Armageddon. And the final destruction of unbelieving men. Now let's consider this then. What day is he referring to? How are we to take these words and this warning and understand our need to be prepared for this sudden event of his return to the earth to judge? Now the reality is that all of the events in verses 4 through 31 are included in what is known as the day of the Lord. 
the day of the Lord. You've, you've heard that terminology before. It is a time of judgment that the Lord is bringing on the earth. It's a time that's going to come surprisingly upon the earth. It's going to come suddenly and it is going to bring great destruction. This day of the Lord is not a New Testament concept, or it is, but it didn't begin there. It actually was an important theme in the Old Testament prophets. And it encompasses, in fact, this 70th week of Daniel and the Olivet Discourse here in Matthew 24 and 25. And all that is revealed to us in Revelation. The first use of this term is actually in Amos. Amos chapter 5, 18. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. He says, speaking of judgment that is going to come upon his people for their sin. He says, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? even gloom with no brightness in it. Indeed, the idea here is that you think God, speaking to the covenant people of Israel, you think God's judgment that's going to come on the nations is going to be for your benefit, but in fact, be prepared for the judgment of God to come for your own sin and for your own disobedience. He's speaking here then of a, of a day of historic judgment, a time where he will unleash his discipline on his people for their sin. It's a day that's often used to speak of judgment that was future to the time of his mentioning it, but has actually passed in history. His judgment on Babylon, his judgment on the nations of Israel and the nations that have gone against his people. However... These judgments function as a foreshadowing of the final judgment that God will bring on the whole earth and the unbelieving world. That's the true intent. That's the true end of this day. Just listen to some of the prophetic anticipations of this. Isaiah chapter 13. He says this in verse 6. He says, Wail. For the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. He says in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. It is a time of judgment. It is a time when God will unleash His justice, His just wrath for the sin of man on the whole earth. Now when he gives those instructions in Isaiah 13, it actually comes in the midst of his condemnations and his warnings to the nation of Babylon. So the Babylon will experience in a sense of first fruits, if you will, of this judgment. But he anticipates something greater. The arrogance and the rebellion that Babylon represents and the judgment that God will bring to them is representative of what he will do in the future against all of the rebellion and the arrogance of men. Let me just give you another example of this. In Isaiah chapter 2, he says this in verse 12, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. In verse 17, he says this, The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, men will go in caves of the rocks into into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises, rises to make the earth tremble. 
Verse 21, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks, into the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to make the earth tremble. This was a day then that was anticipated far beyond the destruction, the temporal judgment of the nations to look to the final end. That end of men who refuse to bow the knee before their maker, before the God who has revealed himself. It is a day that is anticipated in his temporal judgments to the nations and even his own people. But it is a day that is going to come on a worldwide scale when he brings it. It is indeed a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Now while it is a day of judgment, there is a sense of salvation as well that will come to the people of God. It is a salvation that will come after judgment, but it is in fact one that will come. In that sense, it is a day of anticipation, even for the nation of Israel. Listen to these familiar words in Jeremiah 30. He says, Alas, for that day is great, speaking there of the day of the Lord. That day is great and there is none like it. It is a unique day. It is a day that stands out from any other day of judgment. It's called, and it is a time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. In other words, here it is an eschatological, that end times, those last days, the final dealings of God with men that he's anticipating. This is the time of their Messiah, when their Messiah will establish his kingdom and he will rule over them. But it's going to come after a day of great distress, great distress. So that's the, the anticipation when he's speaking to the disciples. That's, that's largely the day of the Lord that they have in their mind. This, this time of destruction that God will bring on the earth. This time of justice where the justice of God will be met out against the sin and the rebellion of men. Where everyone who is lofty and proud in their minds and in their hearts will be brought low before the terror and the majesty of the Lord. Now this phrase is used actually five times in the New Testament. The first, or one, is in Acts chapter 2. Words you're familiar with. And he's quoting here out of Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 30 where he's anticipating this time. But here the, uh, the apostle Peter is quoting this in reference to the coming of the Spirit. After at Pentecost and the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 20 of Acts chapter 2. Well, beginning in verse 19. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. This is the great and glorious and terrible events that will happen before the return of the Lord. As a matter of fact, these are the very events that we've looked at before in Revelation 6. After the sixth seal where he says there was a great earthquake and sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The whole moon became like blood and stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. It speaks of the sky being split apart like a scroll and then kings of the earth and commanders hiding themselves in the caves. Sound familiar? And among the rocks of the mountains... Saying, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. That is then the the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord's judgment that's coming. And here it is including not only the Father but the presence of the Lamb of the risen Christ coming to met out this judgment on the day of the Lord. It's used several other places. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it's used to speak of a sinning brother who will be counted saved on that day, the day of the Lord. But importantly, it's used over in 1 Thessalonians 5, too. Go ahead and turn over there with me, just briefly. We'll look at this, but look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says in verse 1, now as to the time and epochs, brother, you have no need of anyone or anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. You know about this day. You know that it's coming. You know that it will be, bring destruction. And this is, however, instructions that Paul is giving right after he's encouraged them with the fact that there's a, another coming of the Lord and it's going to be the one where he takes you out, where he takes you to be with himself, to meet him in the clouds and be with him forever in verse 17. So we shall always be with the Lord. He says, of that day, of that time, of that coming, you were unaware, you needed to be uninformed or you were ignorant is actually how that word could be train, uh, translated. That idea of uninformed. You did not know. But here's a day that you do know about. Here's a day that is coming. And though you know about it, it yet will catch the world by surprise. It will come as a thief in the night. Notice here that he's clarifying the issue of the rapture for which there was some ignorance. But now he's addressing a new subject in verse 5. And he's saying, yes, that I can clarify your thinking, but here is something that you know in verse 2 full well. You know it. You know that it's coming this day of the Lord, and it is coming at a time that will bring destruction, and it is coming at a time or at a time when the world is not expecting it. We don't, don't turn there, but he mentions it again in 2 Thessalonians 2. two. They're correcting false teachers who claim this day already had come. But he says, no, it hasn't come because the apostasy hasn't happened. And the, man, and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. That he mentions back in Matthew 24.15. No, it is a day that is yet to be unleashed on the world. Look at one more verse. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. He mentions this day yet again in 1 Peter chapter 3, or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Know this first of all, in the day, last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And He warns them that they're Missing the evidence, even as did that ancient world of the judgment that God is preparing to bring on his people. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And he says down in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come again like a thief. It will come like a thief. It will come unexpected where the people on whom it falls will be unaware. Notice when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And there he looks even beyond just the return of the Lord to the very end of that day which will ultimately culminate in the destruction of the present earth and everything that we now see. However, Peter, who was present when the Lord was speaking in Matthew 24 through 25, who was listening to the Lord's words in the Olivet Discourse, marks the time here in 2 Peter between Christ's first advent and the coming of the day of the Lord as a long period in which people will say, look, it's been a long time since He's come and nothing has changed. It's been as it always has been. 
Do not let this one escape escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's been a long time. How can we be sure that He's coming? In fact, the unbelieving will say He's not. And this is the very picture that the Lord is giving us in Matthew chapter 24. The day has been anticipated. The day has been revealed in everything that he's just said. And yet it's a day that's going to come and it's going to catch those on the earth unawares. Living life normally. Not anticipating the kind of devastating judgment that is sure to come and that he warns us of here. So this day then is something that Believers will be spared from. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 that he's not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation. And he's not talking there about the wrath of humans, human wrath, because saints aren't spared from that. Nor is he talking about the wrath of hell. He never refers to it in that kind of language. It's always what he's bringing upon the earth. He's in fact saying that you will be saved from the wrath of God that is associated with the day of the Lord. So believers will be spared from this wrath. Believers on the earth at that time will be removed. Of course, there will be believers later saved during the tribulation. But believers on the earth at that time will be removed. And so Paul could encourage us and through the Thessalonians and say, you're not those who are unaware of this, but whether we awake or whether we asleep, we will be with the Lord. Speaking there of the rapture. So it's something that saints will be spared from. It's a day that involves a series of judgments that will come after the church has been taken away. But the important point I want you to notice is two things here. That this day will come unexpectedly upon the unbelieving. The imagery of a thief is a common way to express the suddenness, the unexpected nature of this coming wrath. That is attended with the presence of the Lord. In that sense it is imminent. In the sense that the people aren't expecting it. And in this way both the rapture and the day of the Lord are closely related. They both have an unexpected nature to it. An unexpected uh, time it will come upon the earth when the Lord brings it about. It could happen at any moment. So there's a sense here in which the Lord is including everything that's related to this day of the Lord. This day that's going to come upon the unbelieving. And while that day in which God will unleash His judgment on the world is coming. And it's coming at an unexpected time. Turn back to Matthew 24 if you're still somewhere else. It is a time that he seems to be focusing on here within that day of the Lord. He seems to be giving a special attention to his actual physical return. The unexpected nature in which he will appear in the clouds of heaven as he mentioned in verses 29 through 31. And bring with him his judgment and his kingdom. Though the signs show that the second coming is near, there still is a sense of uncertainty about its precise moment. There still is a sense of uncertainty as when will it happen? When will it come? As a matter of fact, when this language of day and hour is used together in the same kind of grammatical construction that it is here, it has the idea of preciseness, of exactness. Listen to a similar way it's put together in Revelation 9. Just listen. Verse 15. And he's talking here about the sixth trumpet judgment that's going to come in which these four angels will be unleashed to destroy a third of the earth. He says this in verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. And his point there is there's a precise moment, there's an exact moment that they have been, it has been ordained for these angels to unleash the judgment that has been handed over to him. And in fact, throughout the whole section here, Jesus is emphasizing his coming, the coming of the Son of Man, which which has a direct connection to what, again, he has just revealed in 29 through 31, the physical return, his actual coming, where he will be observed by the tribes of the earth and they will mourn. 
where He will come in the glory of His Father with the angels and where He will destroy His enemies and establish His kingdom. He mentions it several times. Verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 39, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 44, you the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not know. Verse 50, we read it. All of these refer back to His physical return. So while there will be signs pointing to this return for those alive at the time, the unbelieving will be willfully blind and oblivious to them. They will refuse to take heed to the signs. As a matter of fact, again, don't turn there, let me just read it. In Revelation 16, 15, speaking here of the battle of Armageddon, so this final battle where the whole world, the kings of the whole world gather together for war of the great day of the Almighty in verse 14. And yet, in verse 15, in the midst of that, in this overarching day of the Lord, he says this, John does, Behold, he repeats the words of Jesus, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So even in the midst of all of these signs and these things that he's doing, these terrible judgments of the Lord, some will still persist in blindness and unbelief and be captured unawares, surprised. It will be unexpected to them, though the warnings are all around. It's the willful ignorance of unbelief, the refusal to pay heed. So there's a sense in Matthew 24, 36, in which the Lord includes the entire period of the judgment of the day of the Lord, but He's also placing a special emphasis on the culmination of that day, which is His physical return to the earth when He executes judgment on all who have mounted against Him in rebellion, and where He separates the believing and the unbelieving, the damned and the saved. In verses 40 through 41 and other places. He makes a separation. He removes the wicked as stumbling blocks out of his kingdom before he establishes it on the earth. So in a broad aspect, the day of the Lord is going to come and it's going to be a surprise to everyone. And it is going to bring great destruction. In a narrow aspect, it includes the actual time and his climax of his physical return to the earth. To the earth. So it applies to everyone, those who are waiting for this day of the Lord to begin, and even here especially to those who are on the earth at the time that He returns. And we're going to consider that more fully next week. But it is a day here, the main point is unexpected. It's a day that will bring terrible destruction, and it will be a day that will catch many by surprise, simply because of its the long time of its endurance and of his patience until he brings it. I want us to notice one other point, though, this morning. First is, is this is a day that is coming of terrible destruction and will end in the Lord's return. But notice one other thing in verse 36. It's probably the first thing you notice when you read this verse. When is this going to happen? Well, of that day, no one, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And this is an astounding statement. And there is no way possible for the Lord in any way to make the unpredictability of this day any more clear. In other words, this shuts down every possible attempt to determine when the day of the Lord will begin or when Christ will return to the earth. It makes it impossible. And notice the climactic nature of his statement here. He says, first, no one knows. No one knows. That excludes every human teacher or so-called prophet or end times prophet. Those who are biblically literate who can at least know this verse should never be caught up in that kind of silliness. No one knows. He can't say it any more clearly than that. And yet, he says it even more strongly. Secondly, nor the angels of heaven, angels who are in the presence of God, angels who understand Scripture better than we do, angels who are privy to more things and knowledge and understanding than we are in many ways, are yet ignorant of this day. 
How then could a human teacher know? How could any of these false teachers who are claiming, there he is, there is the Christ, he's in the inner room, go out to find him? Of course they don't know. Of course they don't know. The angels in heaven don't even know. And this shouldn't surprise us in one sense. The angels are ignorant of certain things and understanding. You remember, angels long to look into God's work of salvation in 1 Peter 1. They're ignorant. There's things they don't understand. And and here he's saying there's other things they don't understand, even about the return of the Son, though they will accompany Him in this return. But third and most significantly is this. He builds even more. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. Certainly no human teacher or any false spirit or anybody who would claim to know. But even more, not even the Son nor the Son But the Father alone knows this day. Now this statement is striking for two reasons. First, because it seems so contrary or at least moves in such a different direction than what he just said. He just said in verse 33, when you see all these things, recognize that he's near at the door. And now he says, hey, nobody knows. It's going to be unexpected. It could happen at any time. So it's shocking, it's surprising, it's, the statement itself is unexpected, just as the events. But secondly, and more importantly, it's striking and it's surprising because it's an acknowledgement of ignorance regarding the precise timing of his own return as the Messiah and as the Son. That's surprising. The full deity of Christ as the eternal Son of God and the profession of ignorance in our minds and inside of us creates a certain kind of dissonance, a certain kind of incongruity, a certain kind of tension that happens. How could he be omniscient? How could we claim as we go through Scripture that he is the, the Son of God who knows all things and yet claim at the same time, fully and unapologetically, that he is ignorant of the time of his own return. In fact, because of this, as we would expect from those of a liberal persuasion, unbelieving people, argue for the fallibility of Christ and of Scripture based on this statement. Christ was, in fact, only human. Therefore, he could be wrong, couldn't he? To err is human. In fact, not only could he be wrong because he wasn't fully God, but also Scripture could be wrong in the same way because it's written by men. So we see there could be errors all over the place, and this verse proves it. This verse proves it. And even some of the early church fathers struggled with explaining it, even as some do today, because there was such a strong emphasis, particularly in their context, on defending the deity of Christ, that He was God and fully God, every way equal to the Father. And so then they come to a verse like this, and it was a challenge for them. It was a challenge for some of them. And because of their emphasis on his deity, sometimes the reality of his humanity was eclipsed by that. One example of a a way to get around what's being said here is Gregory the Great, a great church father. We owe much to him, but he says this. Quote, speaking of this verse, The Son says that he does not know the day which he himself causes to be unknown, not because he himself does not know it, but because he does not allow it to be known. End quote. In other words, what he's meaning is this. The Son, he says, does really know the day, but he presents it as being unknown because he doesn't want the day to be really be known. That's his way to try to get around a real and a genuine ignorance of Christ referring, uh, regarding the day of his return. Now this point is important enough then for us to take the last couple of minutes and camp out on it for a bit. Because again, to some it's a clear affirmation that Jesus was not fully God. Or that in some way, in his humiliation, he gave up some aspect of deity. So that he was no longer equal to the Father in every way, in his essence and in his person. Including then his omniscience. And for others, it's simply a cause of stumbling. It's simply a cause of stumbling. 
They want to affirm everything that's true about the deity of Christ. And yet they come across a verse like this and it bothers their conscience. And it can cause doubt in some. And they stumble on that. And how am I to explain this? And how am I to understand this? Well, let me just make some basic affirmations for us. And think about this hopefully a little bit more clearly. First of all, we do clearly affirm what is plain throughout all Scripture and has been plain to God's people for ever since the establishment of the new covenant, the coming of Christ. And it is this, and the coming of the Spirit, that Jesus is fully God and there is no God of Scripture apart from the Son. No God of Scripture apart from the acknowledgement of the Son of God. Thomas made this profession after the resurrection. My Lord and my God, which Jesus accepted unapologetically and without explanation because it was a true confession of Thomas, John 20, 28. There was no need to correct him. It was, in fact, an affirmation that Thomas finally got it, what the others had already come to understand more clearly. Matthew ends his gospel noting the divine equality of each person of the Godhead, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Equality, distinction, the name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Titus 1, 3 through 4 says, God is our Savior, God our Savior. And then he says in verse 4, Christ Jesus our Savior. In other words, equating everything he says about God there is true also of Christ, the Son of God, who is also Savior. The Father is referred to as Savior in Titus as well. And the point is, is that this could go on and on and on and looked at from many angles. But scripture is clear that Jesus is fully God, the eternal son of God, in no way less than subordinate by nature to the father. Secondly, we affirm also that Jesus took on the full reality of humanity while not giving up deity, which would be impossible for him since he is God. God would then cease to be God if he in any way lessened his deity in his humanity. Again, I'm just going to mention this. You're familiar with these. Philippians 2.6, the great kenosis passage because of the word used here and how you sometimes hear it referred to. He says in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, his existence prior to the kenosis was one of full, unmitigated glory as God. As God. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, though he existed fully as God in every way, God, every attribute of Godness applied to the Son, even as to the Father and to the Spirit, was in this as it's translated often, emptying of himself in no way a lessening or a diminishing of the glory and the perfections and the reality and the fullness of his deity as the Son. It was an addition, however, to that divine glory of humanity that for a period, particularly during the incarnation, hid, it covered over the true reality of his glory. It was... Noted a little bit on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's shown in his glory. But it's something that he voluntarily took on to cover over with humanity. So his experience of humanity was full. He lived fully as a human man with every limitation. In fact, that was the only way that God could die for us. God can't die for us simply as God, unincarnate. God can't pay the penalty for sin simply as eternal spirit. No, something else had to take place. Something else had to take place, and that's what Christ did. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
He said earlier, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. How could God die and how could God be tempted, as it were, and how could he overcome and how can he be the man without sin who stood in our place? It's only by the full experience of humanity. That's what he took on. And he lived in the, as the Son of God in the flesh in perfect submission to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us when Jesus exhibits or manifests the limited realities of humanity in his person. He's fully united to humanity. It is expected then that Jesus would have, at that moment, a real experience of ignorance of human ignorance, of not knowing, of not knowing when he would return. That should not surprise us, shouldn't surprise us at all. The profession of ignorance should instead produce in us a profound sense of worship. Because it was a real experience of humanity, it was a real limitation, it was a real self-limiting, it was a real ignorance Luke had already told us in his gospel that he had to grow in wisdom and stature. He gained things as a man that he did not have. He grew in that. He increased in that and with favor with God and with men. That was the the whole reality of his life. Everything he did was as a man, though the son, in submission to the father, operating by the power of the Spirit of God in him. He was a man, and yet he was without sin, which enables him to be our substitute and our mediator. He is God the Son who has subjected himself to such limitations to suffer and to die and to rise and to defeat, as we read, the power of the devil, the power of death, the power of sin, and our salvation. So no one knows the day at that point, nor the Son. Does he know now? We can assume so. Scripture is silent on that point. We can assume so now in the full glorification of his glory where he's returned to the right hand of the Father that he knows. But at least at this moment, we can say with absolute certainty he was ignorant. He did not know. He didn't have that information. He could not have told them at that moment if he wanted to. Of course he didn't because he only submitted to the will of the Father. That's all he wanted. So this is a genuine ignorance, but it is a glorious picture of the reality of Christ taking on humanity to be our substitute. To fully live a holy and a sinless and a perfect life in obedience to the Father so that He could go to the cross and be our substitute, the sacrifice once and for all for our sin. But notice what else He says. I want to point out one other thing and we're going to end on this. In only a few minutes. He says, but the Father alone, the Father alone, there is within the Godhead an eternal priority in relationship of authority between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In fact, John tells us in Revelation 4.11 that it is because of the will of the Father that all things existed. He said, because of your will they were created. For Because of your will they exist. It was the Father who sent Christ... It was only the word given to Christ by the Father that he spoke. John 5, 23 through 24. It is the Father's will that the Son sought to do and to accomplish and that would be accomplished in the resurrection in John 6, 28. It was the Father that the Son submitted to and obeyed in the atonement. And it's to the Father's glory that the glory of Christ, even as our mediator, is aimed. Remember the end of that passage in Philippians. Every knee will bow and confess Him as Lord. What's the rest of it? To the glory of God the Father. 
Even his atonement is aimed at the glory of the Father. When Christ is glorified in his work as the Son, the Father is glorified. And then that is the end, that the Son and the Father in that way would be glorified together. Indeed, it is to the Father that Christ will give the kingdom at the completion of his work. The very kingdom that he came to purchase will be offered up to the Father. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Just listen. He just is before saying that all things are going to be subjected to Christ by the Father. And then he says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. The very kingdom is in fact the Father's kingdom, purchased by Christ, ruled over by Christ, and it is one that Christ the Son will then give back to the Father, that God may be all in all. So there is a certain priority that we see even throughout the Gospels and even in the glorification at the end of the age of the Father, the Father and the Son, but with The Son giving all glory to the Father as the Father glorifies the Son. Equally God and yet in their own relationship. So the Father alone is the one then who set the time of Christ's coming in Galatians 4.4. It's the Father alone in Acts 1.7 who set the time and the epochs of the coming of the kingdom of Christ when it's established. If you remember, the apostles asked again, is you, are you now restoring the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so it is here. The Father alone knows the precise time of Christ's return, for it has been set by the Father. So there is a real ignorance here of the Son in submission to the Father in the Incarnation. But there is also here an eternal reality of the authority of the Father and of the Son delighting in submitting to Him that in His submission He's glorified and His glorification the Father is glorified and all of that the Spirit is glorified with them in His work. So His submission to the Father's plan in the matter of His own return is in fact reflective of His eternal relationship with the Father as the Son. And this is not a matter of inferiority as God, but the glorious harmony of love and order within the Godhead, the eternal relationships of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we can delight delight in the reality of His self-humiliation as man for our atonement. And we can learn from the glorious reality of this eternal love born within the reality of their divine equality and glory as God, omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, and yet in this harmonious harmonious relationship of love and obedience. Now why did he say this? Why did he say this? Well, he said this because... He wanted to disclose and or underscore the absolute unexpectedness of his day. That's the point. To show the absolute unexpectedness of this day. That it is imminent. It could happen at any time that it could be initiated. The Father is going to come and the day of the Lord will come upon the earth and it's going to catch people's unawares and he's underscoring that fact. And again, he's dismissing the claim of every false teacher, both now and in the last days, that would claim to have some kind of secret information into the coming of Christ. It contradicts all of those false claims. But even more than that, and this is what we'll see next week, is it marks the need to be prepared. One has said this, The implication is that it is possible to prepare for the parousia, not, or the coming of the Lord, not by calculating its date, but by a life of constant readiness and response to God's warnings and instructions. He wants us to know that, look, don't try to figure it out. Be ready. Today, if you hear His voice, respond. 
Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, not right before he comes. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to give your life to him in hope that he would forgive your sins if you don't yet know him. Today, not tomorrow. Today and right now is the time for you as a believer to live and abandon for the glory of God and obey Him in your life. Not to get around to it tomorrow if you're holding back on something, but now the Lord could return at any time to call us home and the Lord could return to bring justice on the world at any time. So the question is, is are you prepared? And if you say, yes, I am prepared, then the question is, On what foundation do you have that confidence? And what is the evidence of it in your life? Let's pray and then we'll pick up here again next week. Father, we do thank you for the glorious reality of your your sovereign hand over all things. And our Lord, we thank you for your glorious sovereignty over your church and over your people. And we thank you that you though existing in the form of God, though eternally God, though glorious as God in every way, limited yourself to become man, to stand in our place, to be a sacrifice for us, to bring us into your eternal kingdom, to absorb the wrath and the curse of the law for our sin, that we might be free and celebrate and worship to your glory and the glory of the Father and the power of the Spirit to your eternal praise and our eternal joy. Help us to take these words to heart. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and help us to get a sense of anticipation that drives us and compels us, even as we've seen in the life of the Apostle Paul, to live each moment in the light of being with you and standing before you. Help us to live in that kind of obedience and worship and abandon. We thank you again for your word, for your spirit. We thank you mostly for the forgiveness that we have in your work on the cross and the resurrection. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.